0: In John chapter 2, we're going to read about a miracle that Jesus performed. The sermon is entitled, Miracle at Cana. And for those of you who have been reading the Bible for a while, you know that this event is considered to be the first miracle that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry. Or let me put that a little differently. It's the first recorded miracle that we have of Jesus' ministry. John chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had, their, have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. I think we're all familiar with this account. But as always, let's go deeper. Let's learn some lessons from this miracle and this story. And uh, I'd like to bring out three different lessons that we can learn about Jesus and about our salvation from this story. Now back here to verse 1. It says, on the third day... Now, we don't know if that's the third day of the week or maybe the third day of the first week of Jesus' ministry. Uh, We don't know for sure, but it was on the third day that the wedding took place in Galilee. Now, as it mentions, Jesus, his mother, Mary, was there. They had also been invited along with his disciples. And in verse 3, all of a sudden, the wine runs out. Now, Back in these days, a wedding celebration would last perhaps a week. So there was a lot of of drinking over seven days. And uh, we don't know why the the, the wine ran out. Maybe there were more people than they were planning on. Maybe the people that were there drank more than they expected them to. Or maybe the people didn't have that much money and weren't able to buy enough wine. We don't know why. But for some reason... The wine ran out. Now, Jesus' mother, Mary, when the wine was gone, said to him, they have no more wine. In other words, as if she's expecting him to do something about it. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Why would Mary bring this matter to Jesus as if he could solve the problem? Now, don't forget, she had lived with him up to this point for about 30 years. From the time of his birth, she raised him, of course, as a young child. Up to this point, he's about 30 years old as his ministry began. Maybe she had already seen him do some miraculous things. We don't know. That's a part of the story of Jesus' life that the Bible doesn't talk about. Because it's not necessary but why would she at this point come to him and say they ran out of wine as if she expects him now to do something about it like I said maybe over the course of the years she had seen him do miracles don't forget this is the first recorded miracle of Jesus during his ministry so we don't know for sure why and he answers her in verse 4 dear woman Why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Now, when he says my time, he's talking about the time or the hour of his death when he was going to be crucified and through his death on the cross, take away the sins of the world. Jesus places more importance in this case on his relationship with the father than he does with his relationship with his mother. He loved his mother very much. But to Jesus, you know, he was only gonna be on earth for not too long of a period of time. He was 30 at the beginning of his ministry and his ministry went on for about three and a half years. At this crucial point in time now, his mother wants him to do something to produce some more wine for these people. She feels sorry for them. It's kind of an awkward, embarrassing situation for the bride and groom. So she brings it to Jesus and Jesus replies by saying, my time has not come yet. So he's talking about the reason he came to this earth, the reason that the father sent him. So what he's saying here is that my relationship and my allegiance to my father carries more weight than my relationship with my mother. He loved his mother But he never lost sight of the fact and the reality that he was sent to this earth by God, the Father. And first and foremost, his responsibility to the Father has to to come first in his mind. So he wanted to make clear to her, as well as to his brothers and sisters, don't forget that after Jesus was born of his mother who was a virgin, Mary and Joseph went on to have several more kids. So Jesus wants to make clear here that he followed the instructions and the commands of his father, first and foremost, his heavenly father, rather than being swayed or being pressured in any way by his mother or the rest of his family members. So no physical relationships on earth could control him for what he came here to do. He came to follow the dictates, the instructions of His Father. Notice in John 6, verse 38, at another point in time Jesus makes this comment. John 6, in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, not to do my mother's will, not to do any of my family members will, But to do the will of him who sent me. So, you know, sometimes people wonder, why did he uh, respond to his mother in this way? Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus knew what his ministry was all about and why he came to this earth. And he wanted to point out here that his family members, whether it's his mother or his brothers and sisters, his family members would not have any special influence on him. And his family members would not have any special advantage to receive salvation. So think about that. Your relationship with God is just that. Your relationship with God. It doesn't have bearing on anybody else's relationship with God. You know, sometimes kids, when their their parents are in the church and their parents are Christians, they think, well, I'm okay because my parents are are Christians, you know. No, no. It comes down to the point that you have to have a relationship with God. You're not going to get into heaven because of anybody else's relationship with God. It's your relationship with God. So nobody else, you know, it's good to to be raised in a Christian home, to be raised by Christian parents. But there comes a point in time when you have to decide. It's not your parents' religion anymore. It's got to become your belief in God and your relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus goes out of his way here to to point out, you know what, I'm following what the Father in heaven tells me to do. And mother, you know, you're asking me to do this and I realize that my time has not come yet because once I get started, You know, once all these things start to happen and I I start to perform miracles, it's going to start like a snowball rolling down a hill. And it's going to get greater and greater. And the pressure is going to build. And it's only going to be a certain time frame that I have from the time I start doing this ministry to the time I'm going to die on the cross. So his first reaction is to... Make it clear that the only reason he's here is to obey the will of the Father in heaven. And he's waiting for the Father in heaven to tell him, okay, it's time. Jesus had to work against the assumption of the day that his physical family had an inside track on influencing him. And he wanted to make sure that that wasn't the case, that everybody knew that, even his mother. Let's turn to Luke 11 and verse 27. Luke 11 and verse 27. Like I said, Jesus loved his family. He loved his mother, loved loved his stepfather, Joseph, and his brothers and sisters. But he loved God the Father first and foremost, and he had that priority. Luke 11 and verse 27. Jesus was teaching here performing miracles during his ministry. And at one point in time, this woman kind of pipes up. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So Jesus wanted to make clear that In God's sight, there's no nepotism in his ministry and in his calling. Jesus realized that his mother, a fine woman, a humble woman, a special woman, chosen by God the Father to be his mother, to be the mother of the Savior. He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now this this verse means a lot to me because I came out of a church, the Catholic Church, who, throughout history of the Catholic Church, puts a special emphasis on Mary, the mother of Jesus, and of course I used to attend services that were dedicated to her, where she was really worshipped, <laughs> and uh, you know in some cases put higher than Jesus in some people's minds, and. Upon reading the Bible and starting to understand, I saw that's wrong. God in the Bible does not put emphasis on Mary, the mother of God. She was a fine woman, loved by Jesus, a very special woman. I don't want to, to deny that. But she's not to be worshipped. And here was a woman calling out that blessed, you know, the mother who gave birth to you and nursed you. Jesus said no. No. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And I know that uh, in Catholic prayers, there are certain prayers that are offered up where it's a prayer to Mary, the mother of, of Jesus, saying, can you influence your son to do this or to answer our prayer? The Bible doesn't teach that. We don't pray to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and ask her to influence her son Jesus to do this or to do that or to answer this prayer this way. This passage that we're reading shows that Jesus was not to be influenced by his mother, you know, just because you were part of the family of Jesus, that didn't give you a special, you know, free ticket to salvation. Salvation comes to all of us the same way. We have to recognize Jesus as our personal savior. Notice in Mark 3, another example, we're talking about Jesus' family, Mark 3. Mark 3, beginning in verse 32. Verse 31 says, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. So don't forget, Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus was born. They were conceived the normal way. Jesus was conceived immaculately. You know, the Holy Spirit uh, came upon Mary and conceived Jesus in her womb. Then uh, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. So a crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus replies, who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So he puts more emphasis on the spiritual relationship that he has with his followers than on his physical mother and his physical brothers and sisters. So in other words, I'm coming back to this this basic thought Your salvation and your relationship with God has nothing to do with anybody else. If you were raised in a Christian home, give God thanks for that. That's a wonderful blessing, especially in this day and age. It used to be quite common to be raised in a Christian home, but it's becoming more and more rare. But when you come right down to it, when your time comes and you come before your Savior to be judged, you can't point at anybody else and say well it was because of them or this or somebody said that to no it's you and what you believe are you a follower of Jesus Christ do you put your faith and trust and hope in him that's what determines your eternal reward your eternal salvation Amen. so that's the first lesson and like I said sometimes people wonder why Jesus had that strange conversation with his mother he was pointing something out you know, just because you're asking me to do this isn't going to, you know, put my uh, missionary work my, uh, in, into operation. It's when God the Father tells me to go ahead and do it. But as the, teach, as the story goes on, he goes ahead and he does a miracle to help these people out. Now, let's pick up the story in verse 26. We're in John 2. in verse 26. It talks about the containers that held the water that Jesus used for this miracle. It says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Take note of that. Ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So these tall stone jars ...are different from the clay pots that were used for drinking back in Jesus' day. Perhaps the wedding was taking place at the home of a Levitical priest. Maybe that's why these jars were there. Jesus is demonstrating, you know, as he tells the people to put the water in these jars... ...the water that was in the jars would have been used for ceremonial washings... ...under the terms of the old covenant... Because whenever somebody touched something that was kind of unclean, uh, they had to wash themselves. They washed before they ate meals, not to make sure your hands were clean, because, but you could have touched something that made you ceremonially unclean. So the water was used for ceremonial washings to purify anyone who had become defiled according to the Old Testament law. When you read back there in the book of Leviticus, it tells you all the things that you have to avoid touching because it makes you ceremonially unclean. So Jesus is demonstrating when he has them put the water in these jars used for ceremonial washings, and he takes that water and he miraculously changes it into wine. He's demonstrating that when his time comes, when he goes to the cross, when he dies for the sins of the the whole human race. He will take the purification rituals of the Old Testament and replace them with a new and better means of purification, his blood. So water changed to wine. It made the, the groom and the bride happy because they now had wine to serve their guests. But look at it a little differently from a spiritual point of view. Water that had been used for ceremonial washings, because in the old covenant, they felt that if you become ceremonially unclean, you had to wash and clean yourself. But that really didn't take away sins. It was just a procedure. It was just a ceremony. Jesus takes that water from those jars that was used for that purpose, and now he's going to change it. He's going to change it into something that represents his blood. His shed blood on the cross. Okay? So he's actually (laughs) performing a miracle that is taking people from the old covenant to the new. From ceremony and tradition to grace and salvation. We know that whenever we have the communion service up here, we have the fruit of the vine, the wine, the grape juice. What does it represent? Jesus' blood. And that shows us how we are saved by his shed blood on the cross. So what he's doing in this miracle is he's pointing out what he's going to accomplish on the cross. The old covenant traditions are going to be done away with. They're going to be put aside. And he establishes now salvation, not by washing ourselves, but by coming under the blood of Jesus Christ himself. He's going to replace them with something new and better. A purification that comes through his blood. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 9. In the book of Hebrews, the author of this book shows us that uh, the old covenant was a wonderful thing for its time. But it has been replaced with something else, a new covenant. Hebrews 9 and verse 9 says this. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices of the old covenant, all the animals that were killed and the washings and all those sorts of things, they were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. And Jesus was the one who was going to bring in the new order, he was gonna take people from the old covenant to the new. He says in verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, like the old covenant priest did, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of bulls and goats, and ceremonial washings for that matter, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. So just by changing water to wine, he's demonstrating what he is going to accomplish by his death on the cross. He's going to put aside the old covenant, which was not perfect, and it could not bring about salvation. And he was going to establish something that could bring about salvation. His death, his shed blood on the cross. First John 1, 7, I won't turn there, but it says, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. The blood of Jesus, not washing your hands in a certain way, not uh, offering animals at the altar in Jerusalem. It's the blood of Jesus that purifies us from all sin. 1 John 1, verse 7. So you see, Jesus is demonstrating this. And I think it probably went over the head of most people that were there and witnessed him doing that. They're thinking, oh, good, we got more wine, and it's really tasty. It's the best wine we've ever tasted. He's showing the quality of his sacrifice on the cross. It's going to be able to accomplish things that the washings could never do. And it's going to be a better, it's going to be a, a high quality sacrifice. Jesus is demonstrating how his own death will be the final, decisive, ultimate purification of sin. You no longer need rituals. You need Jesus. So you see, he's actually demonstrating that by this simple miracle of turning water into wine. Water symbolizes the old covenant. And the wine symbolizes the new covenant salvation through Jesus' death. And that's why it says this in Revelation 7, verse 14. Revelation 7, verse 14. When it pictures us in heaven, it pictures us as having been saved, rejoicing. Revelation 7, verse 14. says, I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. And how were their robes washed? How were their sins forgiven? In the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb. That's what brings salvation. Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled with Old Testament sacrifices and washings only looked forward to. So here's two lessons that we've learned already. How Jesus pointed out that his main job on earth was follow the instructions of his father in heaven. And he wasn't gonna be swayed by any family members or anybody else. He obeyed the father. And secondly, his demonstration of changing the water to wine was taking the people, and for us today who can kind of look back and understand it with the help of the Holy Spirit, he was demonstrating what his death on the cross was going to accomplish, taking them from ceremonial washings to salvation through his blood. And thirdly, uh, I want to just take a few moments and talk about this poor bridegroom. You know, the bridegroom at this wedding was the one in charge overall of the physical attributes of the wedding. He was the one, when it came right down to it, he was the one responsible for making sure that there was enough wine for everybody to enjoy at the, at the wedding. So when the wine ran out, it was an embarrassment because he didn't do his job. He, he dropped the ball on this. Okay, And thankfully, Jesus you know, stepped in there and filled in for him. Jesus took the role of the bridegroom and fulfilled with the physical bridegroom, was unable to do. He supplied the wine that the physical bridegroom should have made available and should have had on hand. Jesus stepped in and fulfilled the role perfectly of the bridegroom. Turn to John 3 and verse 27. I think we're familiar with the uh, symbolism and uh, the comparison of Jesus as a bridegroom. In fact, John the Baptist goes out of his way to point out that Jesus is the bridegroom. John 3, verse 27. To this John replied, so in other words, they were coming to John the Baptist and saying, okay, we got you, but now here's this Jesus. How do we make this comparison between you and him? Who should we follow? Should we continue following you, John the Baptist? Or should we now start following Jesus? To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, Jesus. I must become less. The one who comes from above, Jesus, is above all. The one who is from earth, John speaking of himself, belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. So John says, Listen, I realize now that I was just to come ahead of Jesus. Now that he's arrived, now that his ministry has begun. You need to follow him. I need to back away. I want to put the spotlight on him. And he specifically calls him the bridegroom. (laughs) The bridegroom. I don't know how much John understood about how Jesus fulfilled that role. But we realize that the bride is the church. The believers. That's the bride. And Jesus is the bridegroom. The husband. Okay. So John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the bridegroom who has the bride. Jesus' growing band of believers, which is the church today. And when the physical bridegroom failed and was clueless, ran out of wine, what do I do now? Jesus stepped in in his role as the real bridegroom and he solved the problem. So, human bridegrooms often fail to be all that they ought to be. And all of us guys, we realize that as husbands, we fail at being all that we should be as a husband. Jesus, quietly, all-powerfully, plays the role of the perfect, all-providing bridegroom for his bride, as well as for the guests that accept the invitation to the wedding banquet. So, Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. He fulfilled the role here in this story of the miracle. But you know what? He does it today, doesn't he? We husbands fail often in our role as the perfect husband. We're nowhere near the perfect husband. But Jesus is there to help us spiritually behind the scenes to make us into what we should be as a husband. But you know what? He does the same thing for the church. He is the husband of the church. And in just a moment, we'll read about the wedding ceremony that's going to take place. So when we physically run out of wine today, when we fail in wisdom, power, or resources, and I'm talking about women too, when we fail to beat the righteous requirement of God's law or fail to love the Lord with all of our hearts, we don't need to fear because Jesus, our Lord, The groom, the master of the great wedding feast, has infinite power and infinite love and is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So Jesus is the behind the scenes perfect bridegroom who is always there for us. He's always there to strengthen us, to heal us, to provide for us to lead us in the right way, to support us in everything we're trying to do in our Christian life and in our Christian calling. Just as he helped this man, he helps all of us, men and women. Turn with me now to Revelation 19 and verse 6. Revelation 19 and verse 6. And he's going to fulfill this role once and for all at the time of his return Of course, there's going to be great celebration. And it says here, Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Talking about the church in a wedding ceremony with the bridegroom who is Jesus Christ. Verse 8, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So in this story about Jesus' first recorded miracle, changing water into wine, what are the lessons that we learned? Well, first of all, Jesus is the ultimate son of the Father in heaven. He answers to him, first and foremost. He can't be swayed by anybody trying to influence him or pressure him in any way, even his mother, even uh, his brothers and sisters. There's no special reward you get for being the mother or the brothers and sisters of Jesus. It's all a personal relationship that we have to have with God. And we get that through Jesus. We're answerable to God for ourselves, not for anybody else. Secondly, Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He turned the ceremonial water of the old covenant into wine which represented his shed blood on the cross. And he did that perfectly. He ultimately did it at his crucifixion on the cross, ushered in the New Covenant. And finally, Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. He stood in for this man. uh, When the wine ran out and he panicked, Jesus was there to take care of the situation. In our personal lives, we panic because things go wrong. We don't have the spiritual wherewithal to do all the things that we need to do and to to obey. And sometimes we stumble and fall, we sin, we get ourselves into a whole host of problems. Jesus is there to help us, to forgive us, to guide us in the right way. So he's also the ultimate bridegroom. So a beautiful story of Jesus' miracle, but it's not just about wine and saving the day for a newly married couple. When we we go deeper, we see the spiritual lessons, the profound spiritual lessons that we can learn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful example of Jesus' goodness, his mercy, and we see a little bit more clearly now why he did this and, and what it all meant. There's deep spiritual meaning here, Father, for us to understand and to believe. We thank you that Jesus followed your direction. He came to this earth to obey you because you had the master plan and you told Jesus exactly what he needed to do step by step and his ministry was perfect. It was completed and it was all done for our benefit. So thank you, Father. And Father, we also want to thank you that Jesus is the perfect high priest. We're so thankful that we have come away from the Old Testament legalistic ways of doing things. We knew that they were not perfect. We knew that Jesus was to come to bring something that was perfect, his death on the cross, which led to grace and forgiveness and mercy for all of us. And finally, Father, Jesus' ministry is ongoing because he is the behind the scenes perfect bridegroom. He is there to Take care of us when we fail and we can have the faith and the assurance to know that our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry or fret about that. We don't have to become discouraged or uh, losing hope. But we live under the mercy and the grace of, of Jesus Christ himself. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death on the cross. For turning that water into wine, which represented your shed blood, because it covers us all. And it will for all eternity. So all praise, honor, and glory goes to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.